0: Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Brett. Hi, <laughs> hey, Jeff. How
1: you doing? Good. How are you? I'm well. It's Monday. It's a Monday, yeah. It is. We are taking the podcast to California. Yeah. We are LA. going out west.
0: We have a special guest from California today.
1: Well, let's get to it. He looks. Right, like You want ready. to meet
0: him? Our guest is Scott Ron. Scott is the founding partner of RMO LLP, which is a national probate litigation law firm focused on representing beneficiaries, heirs, executors, and trustees in contested trust and estate and probate litigation matters. They also represent families and fiduciaries in contested conservatorships and guardianships. Scott's a frequent contributor to news media such as Fox, The Today Show, and BBC. He's been named to the Chambers and Partners 2022 High Net Worth Guide and the Best Lawyers in America list by Best Lawyers. He's also been recognized as a top litigator by the Los Angeles Business Journal and as a visionary by the Los Angeles Times. Welcome, Scott. Very impressive. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to have you join us. So you're out in LA. Are you from California originally?
2: I am a Badger, Wisconsinite. Born and raised rural America. Grew up farming my grandparents' dairy farm. My dad was a mechanic and a truck driver. My mom worked in factories, and that was my path after high school as well. Worked in pizza joints, factories, et cetera. Did a little bit of construction until I found my way To a tech school and then a community college, and then the University of Wisconsin, then law school, and here I am.
0: You went to law school, you were still in Wisconsin. What brought you out to California?
2: The first thing that brought me out to California was the Wisconsin weather compared (laughs) with California weather. I had a buddy of mine at community college who had been a Marine at Camp Pendleton out here, and it was his first winter back, and the first negative 35 below day. He called me up and said, I've had enough of this. I have a friend who lives in Huntington Beach. She's got a house five blocks from the beach. I know you've talked about getting out of here. Let me know if you're interested. And I looked out at my frozen life and I said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. So I came out here for what I now call my scouting mission. Spent about six months out here. I was still in the middle of college. So I went back to Wisconsin, finished my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin. And then I came running out here for law school and I went to law school in San Diego and then got my first job up here in LA and I've been practicing up here for 20 plus years. Excellent.
0: Nice journey. And congrats. You know, we're fans of the warm weather climate here in Miami. (laughs) And how'd you find your way to probate or probate litigation as a practice?
2: Like most lawyers will tell you, it was thrust upon me. (laughs) I was a second year associate at a regional West Coast firm. And we represented a lot of financial institutions. And one of them got dragged into a probate case. And my partner and mentor brought it to me and said something along the lines of, it's weird. It's probate. It has its own set of rules. You're smart. You'll figure it out. Good luck. And I was lucky enough to get a good result in that case. And then to a certain degree, became the probate expert. And anything probate, kind of came my way. I found my way from there to a national firm that had a full-blown probate and trust group and had a really great mentor there who taught me how to do all of the things. And I just continued to focus my ship in that direction. And when I launched this firm in 2015, that became our focus to do probate litigation and probate litigation only.
1: So obviously, we launched our own firm as well, coming from different firms, larger firms, different firms learning the practice. Was there an event or was there always something in your head, and your mind that told you that eventually you'd open up your own business, open up your own firm? Or was there an event that occurred you know, as you were learning the practice of law?
2: So I was a partner at Greenberg Traurig back in 2014, and I attended the partner's retreat in Las Vegas, which I think at the time we had somewhere around eight, nine hundred, a thousand partners. So massive events, as you can imagine. And the firm rolled out its strategic plan at the time, which I think was coined Independence Day, which just reminded me of that really bad Ben Affleck movie. <laughs> uh, but the theme of it was, you know, that Greenberg Charrig, and God bless, them, it was a great place to practice. So I have a lot of friends there. So think very highly of the firm. But they had grown out of the swamps of Florida, as it was described, to become Greenberg Trareg. And what their strategy was, was that they wanted to focus more on representing whales is probably the best descriptor. And that's great business if your clients are whales. But in the probate, trust and estate space, the vast majority of people are individuals. So it's the surviving steps. it's the kids, it's the business partner, the friend, right? Who's going to take care of someone's affairs after they're gone. You still have, and we've always had, and hopefully we'll always have a number of institutional relationships with the major players and the trust company space. But the vast majority of our clients are individuals. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall, that writing being, you can either stay here at the firm and Have your institutional clients, but perhaps not your individual clients, or you can take your clients and try something new. And I was looking around and interviewing with some of the local, I would say, really well respected probate firms in town and asked me, you know, where do I see myself in five or 10 years? And I said, running my own shop. I just blurted it out. It was a bit of an out of body experience. I think I stopped listening to whatever sales pitch she was explaining and just looked at myself and said, yeah, that's the answer. So I steered the ship in that direction and then launched in the beginning of 2015. Wow.
0: I assume you launched a single office because now you have more of a national firm. But before we get to that, you
2: started off one location, just you, or did you start with a group? Started me, myself, and I. I did have some partners in New York. Essentially, they ran New York. I ran LA. We did that for about a year. And in that year, I had grown the firm from me to two lawyers and a paralegal and looked at what the structure looked like and who was giving and who was getting and decided that I was better off on my own own and rebranded the office here in LA, RMO, and we've been RMO ever since.
0: Fantastic. And now how many locations do you have? We have nine offices. And where are they?
2: Nine offices, five states, Florida, Texas... California. California is the mothership. And then Missouri and Kansas, servicing those states out of Kansas City. It'd
1: be interesting to talk about that and the growth and how you went about that because starting out as a single, you call yourself a solo at that point, right? You're by yourself. And mm-hmm. then to develop a firm, not just a singular office, but you know, as has been mentioned, a national firm, not just a firm with a national presence, but a national firm how did that get started and how do you go about growing
2: that? It's a great question. I wish I could say that it was a well-developed <laughs> 25-year plan. Yeah. I wouldn't be honest if I said that. It really started off, like many things, being opportunistic. My partner, Sean, who is the M in RMO, he lives in Orange County. And the drive from Orange County up to L.A., particularly the west side is brutal. And after some period of time, we decided that it would be best if we had an office for him in Orange County so that he didn't commit Harry Carry on the freeways. So that's really how we started our first, I'll say satellite office was Orange County. And I called up a buddy of mine that I'd been partners with at Greenberg, who had launched his own shop in Orange County and asked him if he had an office we could sublease. And he said, Yeah, we do. And about a month, but it might've been two weeks later, he came to us and said, my partnership is breaking up. Do you guys want the office? <laughs> and we talked about it and said, yeah, we do. We like the market here in LA. We do enough Orange County work. We think it makes sense. We took that over and slowly built out the Orange County office. And then San Diego followed. I went to law school in San Diego, have a Number of great relationships in San Diego, and had a friend of mine who does a lot of transactional work and said, You know, we found this stuff out here. If you guys had a local office here, we would use you guys. So we took a run at San Diego and have had success there as well. And then we really started to look at what we came to learn over those first many years, which started, you know, even back in the Greenberg Traurig days, which essentially is that there are not. A lot of people who do what we do and are as laser focused in what we do and just doing the probate litigation. Most of the firms are some large firms, but most of them are smaller firms who are a trust and estate transactional practice. They do the planning work, they do the administration, and they'll do the corporate transactional tax, real estate, et cetera, on the back end. And then they'll have one or two people who will also do the litigation or the planners will dabble in litigation. And we're not estate planners, we're not tax people, we're not transactional lawyers, we're trial lawyers. We like to be in trial, we're not afraid to go to trial, and that is a value add for all of those estate planning firms out there who don't have a litigator, don't want a litigator, don't want to bring one in, and so we can bolt on, ride side saddle, or ride our own horse if that's what they prefer and come in and ninja assassin the litigation, the dispute and leave that attorney with their client to do all of the other work, you know, once litigation's over. So we really found a niche in this space and it's something we really enjoy, it's something we're really good at and we've just found that this need exists in most markets because there tend to be a lot of planners who don't have a litigation resource. So we're just filling a market need that we identified.
1: It seems like at least with the Orange County and maybe even San Diego, it seems like those opportunities sort of popped up here and there, right, to develop an office. You know, your partner didn't want to drive anymore, and then you got a sublease and an office. And then San Diego, it sounds like somebody, you know, said, hey, if you have an office here, you know, you can get some more work. Is that how you've continued to grow? Or at some point in time? Was it more strategic in terms of the market and going out to look for particular areas where you would want to expand?
2: It thankfully became much more strategic and tactical after those first forays. So Florida, Texas, et cetera, are all data-driven decisions. So it's a matter of really where the cases are, where the filings are in our practice as macabre as it may sound, really thrives in those areas where you have death, dysfunction, and wealth. The wealth and dysfunction tend to go hand in hand, but you can obviously also have dysfunction without the wealth. So you're looking at most of your major money centers, but you're also looking at areas where people tend to pass because that's where the estate dispute tends to happen. So Florida was a key target for us We've been in Miami now since 2020. And we added Houston last year as our first toll hold in Texas. And we're looking at the remainder of Florida. We're looking at the remainder of Texas and some of the usual spots, New York, Chicago, et cetera.
0: I would say that we certainly have our share of dysfunction here in Florida, (laughs) but we also have some wealth and some death, so natural. And so you opened your Florida office, you said three years ago. Are you running the firm administratively or do you have a management team? How do you manage so many offices?
2: We have a leadership team. So it's myself, my partner, Sean, who is the managing partner of the firm. Oh, okay. At this stage, we have a COO. We have an admin team. We have our accounting team, et cetera. And then we've got a practice management team. We started running the firm on the EOS platform, made popular by Traction in about 2021. So we're in our third full year running on the EOS platform and it provides a lot of transparency and a lot of cadence.
0: I think probably a lot of listeners aren't familiar with EOS. Do you want to just elaborate on what that is?
2: Sure. Gina Ripman wrote a book called Traction and it is all about the entrepreneurial operating system which provides a structure essentially for a business to run and provide accountability for all of the things that we all want to accomplish in our businesses. You start with a launch meeting essentially where you sit down and you structure what your core values are, which have been instrumental for us in making so many decisions, whether it's hiring, firing, whether we're going to open an office, right? Whether we're going to take a client, whether we're going to use a vendor, formulate core values, and then you come up with what your plan is. What are you hoping to accomplish? And then you put together your quarterly goals, and then you break those quarterly goals down into weekly meetings, essentially to check in to see what you're doing, to make sure you're on the right path to get those things accomplished in that quarter. And if not, what can be done to address those? So it's simply a accountability system, really. But utilizing it and the software gives us an opportunity to make sure that everybody's rolling in the same direction and we're getting the things done that we feel we need to get done to be able to execute on our reach. Did you use a facilitator to help you with EOS? We did, yeah. We used the implementer and the integrator. So it's the implementer uh, is the facilitator. And we use Josh Holtzman out here in Los Angeles who is one of the EOS implementers. And he's a great guy, does a good job.
1: I mean, taking... EOS, which we're both familiar with, and applying it to a law firm is not easy. It's a different business. I guess any professional services firm, and I'm sure it's a mindset, and I'm sure every facilitator would tell us it's your mindset, not applying EOS to a law firm. But it's not as easy as applying it to, let's say, a company that made widgets.
2: I think that's right. I think you know, the soft science that can be a service industry business requires some finessing. And we've had to do a lot of that over the years, right? In terms of figuring out our KPIs, figuring out some of our cadence, some of our meeting cadence, right? Especially in a service business where your only widget is your time, right? And how do you maximize the impact of the time that you're committing to the EOS structure while minimizing the actual amount of time (laughs) that you have to put into that structure? So I wouldn't dare say that we've mastered it even after three years of utilizing it. It's something that we're continually monitoring and making modifications to.
0: I mean, I think one of the struggles is your practice has some similarities to ours in that litigation-oriented practices have generally a less predictable revenue stream. And like you mentioned, many of your clients, the ones that are not whales, they tend to be one and done, right? I mean, the nephew or the son or daughter who got, left out of the will, who hires you for a will contest is not likely to have another one right behind it.
2: I think we probably, other than our institutional clients, our private professional fiduciary clients, we probably could count on one hand the number of people who've had to come back for more than one engagement. Mm -hmm. Again,
1: we do fiduciary work in the insolvency space, but even that, and we have repeat clients that will call us, but even that is a bit unpredictable, and I would imagine similar to your practice, because it depends on an outside force that is really not controllable and is really not regular.
2: Absolutely. I mean, all of these cases, and that's why we talk about the dysfunction, because a lot of this is driven by family dynamics. Right. Right, It's not necessarily driven by money or structuring or... I think a lot of people like to think that it's some sort of mistake that an estate planner made somewhere, right? Like everybody loves to blame the lawyers, mm-hmm. right? But the reality is is those cases are few and far between. We've certainly had them over the course of the past 20 years, but the vast vast majority of the cases result from the family not being honest with themselves about what the family dynamics are and creating a structure that can help protect against those unexpected contingencies. And let's be fair, every family has somebody in their family who is likely to be that rabble rouser. Whether it's your brother, sister, step-parent, aunt, cousin, neighbor, best friend who mm-hmm. thinks they should have gotten something, there are all kinds of people who can throw a wrench into that ointment. And with an aging population. If you think about these stories, I always say they're biblical, but really they're as old as man, where you've got people taking advantage of the elderly. I mean, if I sat and listed all of the different sectors of society that have been involved in financial elder abuse cases that we've handled, you've got the dentist, the HVAC guy, the pool guy, the neighbor, the priest, the rabbi, the list goes on and on. It's really impossible to eliminate any Single category of person because we're all susceptible.
0: Oh yeah, as long as people are willing to or looking to take advantage, that you're going to be busy. I was going to ask you actually what advice you would give to families out there to avoid probate litigation. I don't know if you have thoughts on that topic.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, the short answer, because everybody wants to know, and we do a lot of consulting in this space. Right when these issues come up, so estate planners will bring us in and ask we've got this kind of situation. What do you think we can do to help protect the estate plan? And I often joke that the only bulletproof estate plan is to do no planning at all because then every state's intestacy laws is going to determine who's going to get what. And as long as you're comfortable with that, then you don't have to do any planning. But the reality is, is that everybody should have a plan. It's just a matter of sitting down with your planner and talking about the soft side of the plan, as much as everybody talks about the X's and O's, those X's and O's really are dependent upon the soft side issues. Do you have a second spouse or a third spouse, fourth, fifth spouse, right? (laughs) Are there children from any of those relationships? Are there children from other relationships, right? Is there anyone in your family who has special needs, right? Is there someone that you want to take care of? Is there someone you've promised to take care of? And a lot of those really uncomfortable conversations people just don't want to have because, and I've heard this, I'm a recovered planner. I did planning long enough to know that it's not me. It's not who I am. I'm a much better trial lawyer. But what I heard from people all the time was, I don't want to deal with it now. And I'm going to be dead when it all comes to fruition. So why do I want to deal with it? <laughs> my retort to that was always, well, you know, look, is this the legacy you really want to leave? You want your family besmirching your good name, right? Saying like, why didn't mom or dad Get their affairs in order, right? How could they leave us with this mess? Because I've heard that any number of times over the last couple of decades. You know, where people are like, they had all this success and they had all this wealth, and et cetera, et cetera. And I can't believe they left us to clean all of this up.
0: Yeah, and I'd imagine that even for those who do the planning, there's probably one you got to do the plan. You got to revisit it every once in a while too, because. You know, you would do a plan 10 years later, it could be a completely different circumstance, more kids, you Mm -hmm. know, new spouses, things like that. But also there's probably very little communication with beneficiaries or the people who are going to be impacted by it. So there's a lot of surprises.
2: The better planners will do family meetings around those difficult, sometimes they'll bring in family therapists, Mm -hmm. right? There are therapists out there who specialize in these kinds of discussions facilitating These kinds of discussions to sit down, and I was just having this conversation with a planner a couple weeks ago, and they said, you know, they've never ever had a contest or a dispute in a case where they brought somebody in to facilitate that familial discussion around the reasons why you're getting the house and you're getting the cash and you're getting nothing because we bought you a house three years ago, right? And that house is worth more than whatever we're going to give your brother and sister. If you take the time to walk through and explain your decisions, it's going to have a much more meaningful impact than even, and I know the alternative, and I've talked with people that we've consulted with about this as well. You write a letter of intent, right? You write your wishes in a letter. What we get from that, what we hear is they didn't write that or they were unduly influenced to write that. There is no substitute for hearing it directly from your parent or your benefactor as to why they're making their decisions.
1: Right. And I would think that these family meetings and even bringing in a therapist or facilitator sort of eliminates some of that, right? The unknown, like, because everyone's going to sit around and say, no, no, we were there. We were part of those conversations and we heard the reasons why and what our dad or mother or grandparents wanted to give to you, to us. And I would think that Mm -hmm. would kind of eliminate some of that.
2: And why? I think it eliminates a lot of it. What I will say is that for those people who suffer from the personality disorders that are rampant in these cases borderline personality disorder, bipolar, narcissism the vast, vast majority of people that we talk to when they're describing the things that their uncle did and not distributing the trust or their Sister did in stealing this, that, or the other thing. Is at some point they will get done with their description and they'll say, you know, they're a narcissist. And I will say that yes, this is not a surprise to me. Let me guess. They also had this, and they've done this since they were a kid. And they're like, yeah. How did you know? And it's like this is all we do. You know, we're very accustomed to dealing with all of the personality disorders that lead to the greed, the unrealistic expectations, thievery, the lying the cheating, you know, all the things.
0: Wow. It does sound like fun, your practice.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It is. I mean, it's similar to some of the stuff you guys see in your bankruptcy practice, right? It's just on a family level instead of a corporate level.
0: It's challenging and we struggle with the same thing. It's not only are these serious issues, but the people who are struggling with them really are struggling and they're taking a toll emotionally. And so we Sometimes you're filling the role of lawyer and therapist, you know, and some clients just need to be heard.
2: Absolutely. And that's, I think, to be fair, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back or to our own horn. I think it's one of the things that we do understand what's driving their decision making, right? What their goals really are, you know, because I'll talk to people. I've been saying this for years and years and years at this point. Clients are going to spend two things with us they're going to spend financial capital. We are lawyers, we are not necessarily profit centers, we are cost centers. But more importantly, they're going to spend emotional capital with us. And the vast majority of people run out of emotional capital before they run out of financial capital. So let's really focus on these conversations on what you want to accomplish, what you need to accomplish to leave this relationship feeling vindicated, feeling like you got to win. And then let's Draft the strategy around that, that aims to secure that as quickly as we can or as little as we can. I mean, we rail against the old lawyer joke that the only one that made any money was the lawyer. Right. So if it's not a case where we see that we're going to be able to put the client in a better place than we found them, we just don't take it. Having done this as long as we have and doing it and only doing it, we can kind of see the writing on the wall, depending on what's at issue, what the claims are, what the personalities are. So it allows us to make those determinations early on and advise clients. And we talk clients out of doing cases all the time just because it's just not there and it's not going to be worth it to them in the long run or short run.
1: Just to kind of wrap it up, Like, what's the future look like for RMO? Is Are you guys going to continue your growth across the country, different markets, or just kind of grow in the current markets that you're in?
2: We're going to continue to grow in the markets we're in, continue to round out. We're still rounding out in California, for example. As I mentioned, we're intending to round out in Texas and Florida, where we already are. And then we've identified as key acquisition markets, New York, Chicago, Atlanta, etc. So we've got our eye on the prizes. But the single most important thing for us, because we believe very strongly in the old adage that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So we're very picky about who we welcome into the hallowed halls. They have to be the right people. They have to be the right fit. They have to take care of people the way we take care of people. And those people are hard to find. It's hard enough to find a trusted estates practitioner. It's even harder to find a trusted estates litigator and then find them in those markets and then find people who do things the way we do them. It's been a slow haul. We're not interested This isn't an ego project. We don't need to be everywhere. But we think we have a better mousetrap. We think we do a better job of taking care of people. And we'd like to be in those markets where we can help people as long as we find people who want to help people. So we're out there looking. So if anybody's listening, if you guys know people in any of those markets, please don't hesitate. Give me a ring. I'd be happy to talk to them. Yeah,
0: you can find Scott's information in the show notes look forward to hearing what RMO does next Scott and really enjoyed having you on the show today if you enjoyed this show please subscribe share the show and leave a review subscribing to the show and leaving reviews actually helps others find the show and it helps us grow and devote more time and produce better content for you and we look forward to seeing you next time Scott thanks so much Nelson Brett Scott, Scott thank you Nelson thank you, all. Thank you. Jeff always Thank you. It's on. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram
1: at fastamron.